The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're looking at uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, and these are the title of the message is 12-Year-Old Problems, and I think you'll be able to figure out from the text after, I, after we read it together why it's titled 12-Year-Old Problems. Matthew 5, I'm sorry, Mark 5, beginning of verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet, implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse." She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And I'll just give you more of a a modern translation of the, the Greek is, they're, they're blown away. They're blown away with mega ecstatic, where we get the word ecstatic for amazement. So there's, there's just, they are just utterly blown away by what Jesus has done. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Ends with such note of affection, even of the simplest needs of a father taking care of a child. Let me pray for us. Father, in the stillness of this 
room. Holy Spirit, you are here. And we know that you rule in our hearts and we ask afresh that your lordship would prevail, that we would yield to you every aspect of our lives, that you would work bringing conviction of sin, newness of faith, fresh repentance, that you would renew joy and hope and love. We ask that you would get the glory and that you would help us to focus and not to drift off. We ask in your name. Amen. We're going to look at mainly just two things this morning, the desperation and then the deliverance. And the desperation also is tied up in it as a delay. But you've got two stories here going on. There are two stories about two women. They're both referred to as a daughter. Jesus refers to them both as daughter. And they are woven together in what theologians call the Markin sandwich. We get a classic Markin sandwich in this program. I think I learned that, that term from Mike here, who's got his doctorate, and you learn these nice big terms like the Markin sandwich. And a sandwich is, is, is when one story is inside of another story. And Mark, being this great storyteller that he is, will sometimes weave a story within a story. You'll have an outer story and an inner story. So we start with an outer story of Jairus comes, like everybody does in Mark 5. What did everybody do in Mark 5 when they get in the presence of Jesus? When the demoniac gets in front of him, he falls down before him. What does Jairus do? Falls down before him. What's the woman going to do? When she gets healed of the healing, she's going to fall down. So we see what Mark is trying to show us, that Jesus is great. He's so great that people just fall down before him in his presence three times in this chapter. But in this Mark and Sandwich, it starts off with Jairus, the ruler, coming and saying, my daughter's at the point of death. Please come and, and lay hands on her, and she'll be made well. And so the outer story is Jairus and his desperation. But that's going to lead us to the inner story, is that this 12-year-old daughter, she's at the point of death. This 911, this 911 call has been placed. The EMS crew is now on its way to the scene. Jesus actually needs to be airlifted to the scene, or this person needs to be airlifted to Jesus, but we don't have a helicopter, we don't have an ambulance, we actually don't even have sirens, but we have a crowd, and they throng about Jesus, and you can tell the sense of like, we're in a hurry, we got business. Girls at the point of death, we got to get there, somebody very important, this is a VIP, this is the ruler of the synagogue, and it's his only daughter. Please hurry. If you're not picking that up, I mean, you know, there's, there's something big going on here. But then we've got this inner story, right? And right in the midst of this, as we're getting to this inner story, we're told in verse 35 some really bad news. That this inner story has caused such a delay and such upheaval that while he was still speaking having this conversation with this non-VIP. There came one from the ruler's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus blew it. He's got wrong priorities when it comes to triage. He doesn't understand ER technology and what value of, of priority of what's really important here. And Jesus has blown it. But wait, wait a minute. Isn't there somebody else in this text that's gone from bad to worse? Huh. 
You go back to verse 25 and 26. And we're told about this woman who'd had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians. Double trouble. And had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So verse 26 and verse 35 correspond in the Mark and Sandwich. So you would pick up hopeless and hopeless even worse. We've gone from bad to worse in both stories. And Mark has wonderfully sewn together these 12-year-old problems. We have a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and a 12-year-old girl at the verge of death. And Mark wants us to see the contrast in the comparisons between these 12-year-old problems. So let's start with the contrast. First of all, Jairus is a prominent man. She, on the other hand, is a lowly woman. He has social standing. She has social stigma. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. She's nowhere near the synagogue because she ain't allowed in. Because he's in the inside and she's on the outside. We have an insider and we have a big outsider. Jairus is loved by society. He's an in-crowd. He's part of the spiritual elite group. He would have been wealthy, respected. He was really good at winning friends and influencing people as he would have had a lot of friends and he would have influenced a lot of people. And she had lost all of that. She had lost all her money. We know that. So all of her money's down the tubes and she's lost all of her friends because she can't go near anybody. This woman with this bleeding issue, is, she's ceremonially unclean now for 12 years. Her time of the month was her time all the time, every hour, every day, 24-7, and that's creating a cascade of problems on her life. See if you can pick up on the problem. This is Leviticus 15, 19-24. Just see if you can pick up on what her life would have been like. When a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening, and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean, everything on which she sits shall be unclean, and whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening." And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, who, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days and every bed, every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. Eight uncleans and three impurities in five verses. The blood issues were serious because the life is in the blood, and God placed a high regard on that. But as a, res as a result for this woman, she can no longer function in society. She's not allowed in the temple. She's not allowed in. And if she's married, she can't be intimate with her husband as he would be unclean, and everything he touches would be unclean, and so they can't be near each other, and certainly no children are a possibility during these potentially childbearing years. That's out the window. And that anybody she knows, she has to let them know she's unclean, and she is a leper, because nobody can have any physical contact with her, 
And if anybody touches her, it's worse than the cooties because you would be unclean and spreading uncleanness wherever you go with whoever you touch. And so for this woman, it's like being perpetually in quarantine, perpetually testing positive for COVID every day for 12 years, never getting out of quarantine. But worse, there's no live streaming and you can't go to the temple. Your family doesn't get near you. You can't touch anybody. No hugs, no no affection, no physical touch. For all intents and purposes, you're a leper. She's on the bottom rung of society, cut off, marginalized, disenfranchised, discarded. Last but not least, her medical bills have bankrupted her and have taken her literally to the poorhouse. She has spent her livelihood trying to get help from doctors. They have taken her money and they have given her nothing but made her worse and not better. And so Mark has now weaved this story into this story of this 911 call. We've got this EMS crew on emergency, no time for doctors or delays, and Jesus is not your typical triage doctor because certainly if you were to just rank these two together and you've got at the point of death and a bleeding disorder, which takes priority? I don't know if some of you saw the the documentary on Netflix of this... uh, volcano that erupted, and I forget what country it was in, but there's a documentary of some people that actually survived, and it's unbelievable. I mean, they're, they're showing you footage of this thing going up, and, and the temperatures, and people being too close, and most of the people died, but there was one helicopter that went in, and then the other helicopter said, we're not coming, it's too dangerous, and so these poor helicopter pilots, there's, they, have to, they have to decide and do triage on the spot. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? Who we're going to try and get out? And, you know, it's very stressful. And so you can imagine just the idea of like triage is Jesus is being called to something urgent. And certainly this woman shouldn't be taking such precedence. It's kind of like I just got six stitches on my finger the other Monday before last. And I knew as soon as I cut my hand, I knew I was going to need stitches, and I was in a lot of pain. But I knew as soon as it happened, I said to myself, my day is ruined, because I knew I was going to be at the ER. And I remember a doctor pulling me aside when my, either my mom or my dad, I think it was my mom, actually went to the ER late at night on a Sunday. And she got there like 11 or 12, and I remember driving there all the way to Delaware, and they hadn't even seen her. I think it was even her or my dad. I hadn't seen him yet. I think it was my mom, but, and the doctor said, you never want to go to the ER on a Monday. It's very counterintuitive, but he just says, nobody wants to ruin their weekend. They're sick as a dog, but they wait till Sunday night or Monday morning because they want to take off work and get time off for it. But who wants to ruin their weekend and go to the ER? And it was the day before was January 1st. Who wants to ruin a holiday by going to the ER? So I knew going to the ER for me was going to be bad. And sure enough, when I got there, it was packed. And you know when you go there with a finger and it's got a nice bandage that my daughter did so nicely, bandaged it up for me. I knew I was going to be last in the pecking order. You are not a priority. You are just a little, you know, six-stitch finger. Like, we'll get to you. And five hours later, and it was way past dark at that point, I finally made it out of the ER. Yippee. Well, this is what happens here. Is you, can, you can imagine that this group is clearing the way of all diversions, dreaded delays, we can't have any of those, and Jesus stops 
And all this woman wants to do is sneak a healing. She just wants to sneak a healing. She has faith. Imagine how embarrassed she is. How do we know there's a big delay in the action? Well, you don't have to finish first on the test. I was never one of those guys. You don't have to finish first the test to figure this out. Because the t details are given, given to us in the text. The text gives us a big clue at the end of verse 33. When Jesus calls her out or asks, you know, who is this? It says she told him the whole truth or all or every truth. She's a talker. They're in a conversation. Jesus will not be hurried. You never see Jesus running in the Gospels. You never see him jogging. He's never out of breath except when he's on a cross slowly dying and breathes out his last breath and says, under your hands I commit my spirit. He's never in a hurry. Jesus doesn't show importance like we do. Because sometimes we, we, we can take pride in, hey, I'm, I'm in a big hurry. I can't, can't, I gotta go right now. I gotta go. Because I'm, I'm doing big, important things. I can't, can't help you right now. I'm in, a, I'm in a big hurry because I'm important. Jesus doesn't show importance by being in a hurry. Jesus shows her importance by slowing down. He does everything backwards. And so Jesus is not like the typical ER doctor who understands the value of seconds. Whether or not there are delays of a few minutes or a few days in Lazarus' death, it doesn't matter. When you're Lord over danger and you can stop and say to a storm when they're crying out, we're perishing, don't you care, Jesus? And he just tells the storm to be quiet. And when you're Lord over demons, that was the passage we looked at last week, and you can just cast them out and hurl them, well, he's Lord over disease. Twice we're told this woman had a disease, and, and we're told that she is made whole. And so if he can heal her, he can halt danger, he can hurl demons, can he not heal somebody from death? That's the kicker. You see where this text is leading us? He's Lord over danger, Lord over demons, Lord over disease, Lord over death. So timing for Jesus, he doesn't play on our ball field. He doesn't play on our paradigm, our grid of what is acceptable and good and what looks like a long life or a short life or an acceptable life or when Jesus should deliver the prayer and answer the prayer. You see, the disciples and Jairus and all his friends, they had to be terribly disappointed that Jesus has gotten so sidetracked and attended to such petty need when the big stuff was pressing. But to Jesus, they're both 12-year-old problems. They're very important. And who he heals first and how he does it may not fit our timing in our ball field. Because his ways are not our ways. His timing is not our timing. Jesus knows best. And so, as one commentator put it like this, this is James Edwards' commentary, both stories are females healed by the touch of Jesus. Both are called daughter by Jesus. And the woman's illness and the girl's age are both given as 12 years. In both stories, Jesus is met by rebukes. And both stories bring Jesus into contact with uncleanness. Huge theme in Mark 5, isn't it? If you remember last week, how many times the unclean spirit, unclean spirit, unclean spirits around pigs, into the Decapolis, into Gentile area. And Jesus goes right in the middle of uncleanness. Well, what's he doing in this chapter? This woman who touches him would have made him what? Unclean. 
Not so, not Jesus. The reverse happens. She gets clean. And to touch a corpse, Jesus is going to touch a corpse. And he touches a corpse, and certainly that would make him not Jesus. He makes you whole. And so the, the uncleanness theme is there it is again for us because there's nothing too unclean for Jesus. Jesus cleans up everybody. And so what we see is that all fall down before Jesus. All three are healed. And in all these instances, Jesus is bringing hope to the hopeless, to people that we would say are beyond hope. And so it gets us to think outside of our paradigm, who we tend to write off, who we tend to think they're just too far gone. In every case, hope was gone here. The disciples would have drowned, they're perishing. The demoniac lived on the other side of the lake, written off, removed from society. He's living among the dead. He's basically dead while living. This bleeding woman was broke, ostracized, alienated, lonely, getting worse and not better. And Jairus' daughter is dead. And Jesus just turns all of them right side up. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's showing you what the kingdom of God looks like. And so if you drill down on this this bleeding woman for a woman for a moment. And what happens to her? What does she do? I mean, think about how incredible this woman's faith is. She's another Ruth, she's another Abigail, she's another Esther. Jesus loves, you can just tell when you read the God loves these bold women that are so bold. They just do things by faith that are they're just like, they do not fit societal norms. For Ruth to crawl up next to this guy in the middle of the night, basically saying, I want you to propose to me because I'm basically proposing to you right now. That's pretty bold. That takes some faith to trust that he's not going to take advantage of her, and he doesn't. And, he, you know, and what Abigail does, she's averting disaster. Her husband's Nabal, it means fool in Hebrew. He's a fool. And Nabal the fool doesn't respond to the need. And David's been taking care of all the sheep and all the people that, that, are, that are, he's, Nabal is over. David's been taking care of them. And David is mad. It's feast time. You won't give us any food. We're going to slaughter everybody. And to avert disaster, she quick grabs the food, grabs the wine, grabs all these raisins and all this fruit. And she heads down on their donkeys. And she meets David and says, I wouldn't want you to be, have this guilt on you because I know you're going to be king and I wouldn't want your conscience to hold this against you someday, but I know you're going to be great. <laughs> and he's looking at this bold woman who defies her husband and does what is right. And then you've got Esther. You can't go into the king without being asked. If I perish, I perish. My people are going to die. You can't touch Jesus. You can't do that. That makes him unclean. You don't touch anybody. You're not even allowed to be in the crowd. But her faith is audacious and bold. And so it gets us to, to think about ourselves. Here there's a great crowd thronging Jesus. It's one thing to throng him. It's another thing to trust him. It's another thing to touch him. You might be in the crowd here this morning, but are you doing business with Jesus or are you just part of the entourage, part of the party going on the way? Maybe you're part of the people that feel like, you know, we're, we're off to see the wizard. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We're on, the, we're, we're on our way. We're on our way. We're off to see the wizard. Just got to go down the yellow brick road, right? We're, on, we're, we're part of the party. And I love how that's such a contrast to the Bible because they're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. What happens when they get to the wizard? Realize it's a sham. 
The wizard is nobody. He can't help anybody. He's not good. He's not powerful. He's not merciful. He's not mighty. But Jesus is. And as Augustine says, the early church father, flesh presses, faith touches. Have you touched Jesus? Have you interacted with him, your own soul, the lover of your souls? She does. There's a whole crowd that's just thronging about him, but she's doing business with Jesus. She has a need. She's desperate. You want to know where faith begins? What do all these people have in common? End of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5. The theme is desperation. True faith has its roots in desperation, that there's nowhere else we can go. We can't fix the problem. We are all Humpty Dumpties. We can't get, all, get up. We're all wackadoodles. We come from wackadoodle families. I mean, I was just reading Jonathan Edwards' first chapter in this great book by Morrison of his biography, and just reading of the things of Edwards' family. I mean, one, one of his immediate family members has committed infanticide, and another's committed murder with an axe and killed. And you're wondering why he would write sinners in the hands of an angry God. You wonder why he's, he talks about the, the, des- you know, the, the depravity of man because he saw it in his own family. And his own grandmother had been slaughtered by the Indians and two of his aunts were slaughtered with a hatchet. And the, and the grandfather was taken into captivity into Canada by the Indians. And that's the context of which Edwards is writing. I mean, you want to talk about gratitude. I'm reading this thinking, man, we've got it so good. <laughs> right? Desperation. We're all desperate without Jesus. If we're, the key is just being honest and starting to wake up to the reality of you can't bring yourself into the presence of God with your own merits, your own talents, your abilities. You can't fix it. You can't make it right. And you're like this woman that would spend all of your money trying to fix it, and she spent all of her money, and she's not getting better. She's getting worse. And so maybe what Isaiah has to say would be for us, just as for this woman. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen and you may live. You see, faith takes hold of Jesus. And what Jesus does is he's showing us in this passage what the kingdom of God in its fullness. We're getting a snapshot now. We're getting a window into the future. And when you look into the future and you, you read Mark 4, Mark 5, and you think new heavens, new earth, is there going to be these wild storms where people are going to perish at sea? No. Are there going to be demons that are going to be prevailing and taking over people and speaking for them and, and making them cut themselves and making them miserable? No, they're going to be gone. Demons hurled, storms calmed. How about people that have diseases? What Psalm 103 says, he forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. They'll all be healed. So he's giving you a snippet by healing this woman and showing you what it's going to look like. And then how about death itself? Will there be death in the new heavens, new earth? He says to this woman, he comes along and he says, Talitha Kum, it's like the father going in and waking up his daughter in the morning. Upsy-daisy. 
Time to get up. Time to get up. It's as simple as waking somebody up from their sleep is Jesus taking somebody who's dead and bringing them to life. Isn't that what the Bible says? The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, I don't want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Upsy-daisy. Time to get up. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Talitha Kum, little child, arise. Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. And someday he's going to turn the key and unlock life in us again. And all of our loved ones, he's going to turn the key. But we're all going to have to give an account to our maker. Jesus says, don't even marvel at this. I think this is one of the most marveling passages in the Bible. And Jesus says, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who've done good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who've committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. You're all going to be raised. The question is, what are you going to do when you've been raised? Because the Bible says in Acts 17 that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So Jesus is the one that we will all stand before. And Jesus has said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests upon him. Faith is laying hold of Jesus. It's also a taking off of any hold of self. If you're trying to hold on to self and holding on to Jesus, that won't work. It's putting soul, laying your trust on Jesus, coming to him with your need and believing that he's able and willing to save you from your sins. Look at the reflection quote in the bulletin. I'll close with this. There's a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism written long ago, hundreds of years ago, or 1600s. And the question is just what is true faith? And here's the answer. It's for each of us this morning to think through. Is your faith true? What makes your faith different than demons? Demons know who Jesus is. Demons fall down before him. Demons ask not to be tormented. Demons know a punishment's coming. That doesn't save any of them. This is what true faith is. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. Okay? At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me. Because a lot of times the devil wants you to think, well, this is good for everybody else, but it's not good for you. But faith says it's not only true for others, but for me, that God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. 
Are you trusting by mere grace in the work of Jesus and what he has done in his life, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension? Are you trusting in his perfection rather than your own? And have you turned from all of your goodness, all that you think that if, Lord, you do this, I'll live a righteous life for you. If you forgive me based on my future merits, please have mercy on me. Yuck. Don't forgive me based on any of my future obedience because there's not going to be any. That's going to need to be repented of too. It's only in Christ alone that we trust and we grab hold of it like this woman grabbing that garment, thinking she's going to sneak a healing. But when it comes to be made public, she goes public with her faith, confesses all she's done. And does Jesus ever turn away somebody who's come to him in faith? He says, no, your faith has made you whole. Go in faith and be healed of your disease. And this word whole is not just therapeua in the Greek. It's the sozo word, which means saved. It's a fullness. You've been saved. Have you been saved because you've trusted in what Christ can do and not yourself? Let's pray. Lord, we come to your embrace to your loving arms. You are the lover of our souls. Lord knows there's nothing in us that should make us, Lord, pleasing in your sight for we are all undone. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We come not because we are righteous, but because you're merciful. And we thank you for this abounding mercy that we cannot get to the bottom of. We thank you that your love knows no limits, there's no depths to your grace. And we thank you that your love is not like our love that is very limited and finite. Where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more. And we thank you and praise you. And we pray that, Lord, it would turn our hearts that this unbelievable love would melt us and it would melt our affections for the world, our love for other things. Pray that our trust, our affection, our desires, Lord, change us from the inside out, that we would purify ourselves as you are pure, now as children of God. We thank you in your name. Amen.